Well, as you turn with me to Acts chapter 2, we're going to see the passage that Lou read this morning. And as you're turning there, let me pray and we'll ask the Lord that he would come and that he would show us in his word what he has for us this day. Lord, we ask that you would be the one who would speak to our hearts. Lord, that your word would be living and active, that our hearts would be soft to your voice, to the leading of the Holy Spirit, that we might be men and women and children who love you, who have that evidence in their lives that we serve a risen and living God, that Christ is not in the, day, the, the grave, but that his resurrection triumphed over the grave. Lord, as we consider the needs of one another, Lord, we ask that you would be a God who meets the needs, that comforts the grieving, the sick, the lonely, Lord, your, your people have needs that we don't even know, and we ask that you would be the one who would see to it that they are comforted, that their needs are met, that their hope is in you. Lord, for our missionaries around the world that are serving you in new places and new cultures with new languages, we pray that their ministry would be effective, that they would see the fruit in the lives of new believers, that they would see people who were once dead living and walking in newness of life. Lord, we pray for open doors for them that they would have the opportunity to share the good news, the hope that you've given them. Lord, we ask that you would illuminate your word, that it would be a lamp to our feet and a light to our path this morning. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you may be familiar with meerkats. You know, they're a type of mongoose that lives in the Kalahari Desert. The Kalahari Desert's a very dangerous place to live, and meerkats typically do it in large, extended families and groups. The meerkats, when they're together, are called a mob of meerkats, and they can live in groups up to 50 meerkats together. The Kalahari Desert not only is dangerous because of the climate, which gets well below zero and well above 100, but there's often drought, which means the meerkats have to move to a new place. It often means that there are floods where the meerkats' burrows are washed out. But that's not their primary danger. The meerkats live in an area that has many different types of birds, hawks, falcons, eagles, owls, that all would like to make a snack of them. On the ground, they also have wild cats and foxes and weasels and jackals and snakes. And even other meerkat mobs will come and attack other meerkat families. So the life of a meerkat can be dangerous. And to the end of protection, the meerkats have a very simple life. They don't do a lot of things, but they devote themselves to a few things that they do well. The first thing that they do is they wake up early and they start foraging for food. Meerkats will eat just about anything, except for some root vegetables, and I can identify with that. You know, I don't wake up in the morning and start looking for salad, and neither do the meerkats. So they go out and they start foraging, Another thing the meerkats have devoted themselves to is the collective idea that nobody is the parent of the young meerkats alone. 
that the whole mob seeks to raise and care for the young meerkats. And they're always digging and expanding their burrows. They never stop growing their burrows. They live in an area about two square miles. So different times of the year, they might move to different burrows. And so they're always going and digging. And there's not a whole lot that they do outside of those few things and a couple others, but their lives are simple so that they can devote their lives to those things and not be distracted by a lot of other things. Today, I want to look at two things that we as Christians devote ourselves to and our lives to. Those are the ideas of upward living and the idea of outward living, that we live a life that is devoted to God upwardly, and we live a life that is devoted to God's people, which is outward. The idea of devoted is not an easy word to define, so I just have some synonyms. To be devoted means to be committed. It means to spend time. It has an ongoing nature. You don't just devote yourself and you're done, but you are continuing in the devotion. It also kind of has the studying and practicing and ongoing processes devotion. In Second Chronicles, it, speaking of devotion, says, for the eyes of the Lord roam throughout the earth to show himself strong to those who are wholeheartedly devoted to him. That the eyes of the Lord look for the man, the woman, the child who is devoted to him, that he might show himself strong. There's two, ver two words here in our passage today that are devoted. And I want to pay special attention to those. Let's read Acts 2. Verses 42 through 47. It says, They, this being the new church, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and signs were being performed through the apostles. Now, all the believers were together and held all things in common. They sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as any had need. Every day, they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple and broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. Every day, the Lord added to their number those who were being saved." This idea of devoted, as we see the new church, this early church, is daily. Daily they were doing these things. Every day they did this. Every day the Lord added. And that's what devotion is. I'm going to give you two examples. The first is nobody is devoted to cleaning out their gutters, right? You don't do that every day. You don't get the ladder out and a broom or a leaf blower or whatever you're doing. Nobody is devoted to cleaning their gutters. They do it once a year, twice a year, whenever it needs it, but that's not a devotion. Nobody is devoted to flossing their teeth. You do it twice a year or as needed before you go to the dentist. Don't lie to me. I know. I know how often we floss our teeth, right? The dentist always tells me, you're doing good, keep, what, keep doing what you're doing. I'm like, if you knew. 
But the idea of devotion has that dailiness. And that's what we see here in Acts 2.46. Every day they devoted themselves. In verse 47, every day the Lord added to their number. So they were devoted to meeting together. They were devoted to sharing the good news daily. Acts 6.1 says every day they would distribute the food to those who had need. In Acts 16.5, the churches were growing daily. In Acts 17.11, the Bereans were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica. And every day they searched out the scriptures to see if what Paul was saying was true. Every day these were happening. Because the Christian faith was brand new, they took this as a, what do we do? How do we live? And this is what they came to. That we need to be devoted, and to be devoted means that we are committed to and practicing these things and doing these things daily. This brand new church had a stark reality of yesterday we were dead in our sins, and today we have a brand new reality that Christ, just 50, 60 days before this, was walking on the earth and was killed on the cross for our sins they had a reality that we don't have looking back over thousands of years that this is immediate, that this is daily, that this is something that needs to be done, that the Christian life having an upward living is regularly occurring. Their fellowship was every day. Their breaking of bread together from house to house was every day. The apostles' teaching, their prayer was daily. So let's look at the two things that are upward in verse 42. The first is the apostles' teaching, and the second is prayer. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching. The apostles are the men that walked with Jesus and were called specifically by him, and they were teaching. And these people were walking with and sitting under the apostles, and certainly they were saying things like, tell us more. What else did Jesus say? Is there something that you don't remember that you want to tell us and share with us? And they were devoted every day to what it means to walk with, to live with, to learn from, to hear from Jesus through the apostles. They would have talked about the life, the death, the burial, and certainly the resurrection of Jesus. They would have connected their daily lives back to the Old Testament, which was the testimony of there will come a Messiah. Here's how to find him when he comes. Here's what he will do. And they were saying, this is Jesus. The apostles' teaching. The apostles also taught them about baptism. In verse 41, literally the verse right before they devoted themselves, we see a lot of people come to the Lord and the first thing they do is be baptized. Verse 41, so those who accepted his message were baptized. The first act after being saved was that they were baptized. If you have been saved and have never been baptized, today's the day. Come tonight at 4.30, the details are in your bulletin, and be baptized. It's what the Bible says to do. I don't care how long you've been a Christian, if it's been a day or a hundred years, the Bible calls us to be baptized. You don't need to be baptized in order to be a Christian, but you do have to be baptized in order to be obedient. 
the Bible calls us to be baptized, and that's a sign of our obedience to the Lord. It testifies that there's a change in my life, that I have been redeemed, and now I want to show the people around me. And also, as we're talking about the church, this is something that an, a believer says to the church. And the church affirms that and says, we are here for you. We see that there's a change in your life. So it's important to be baptized, but it's also important that the church supports those who are being baptized to care for them and to love them and to say, we as a church know that this is an important step. We appreciate your obedience. We're excited to see what the Lord has for you in store. So come tonight if you have not been baptized. If you have been, come and support those who are being baptized tonight. So they were de devoted to the apostles' teaching. The other upward thing is to prayer. And some translations will say they were devoted to the prayers, which is a good translation because one of the oldest Christian manuscripts or um, models of living called the Didache says the Christians are to follow the Jewish custom of praying three times a day. And so this probably has that idea of regular multiple times a day of ongoing prayers. And a lot of their prayers were pre-written that they would recite like we would see in either the Psalms or in Colossians so that there's a model to follow. So they were devoted to the prayers or to prayer. The important thing about being devoted to prayer is that we are expressing our dependence on God. Through prayer, we're expressing that we are dependent on God and who he is. That's often why you'll see someone who's in danger or crisis start to pray. God, save me from whatever this emergency is. They've done everything they can. They're still in a crisis. They're about to die or there's something tragic about to happen and they turn to God because they cannot depend on themselves and now they're dependent on God. In the life of a Christian, we should not wait until we are at our limit to show our dependence on God. But prayer is expressing that I am dependent on the Lord. If you go to the Lord three times a day in prayer, before everything you do, after everything you do, you're further showing that you are dependent on God. So upward living is more than just obedience to the rules. Upward living is that devotion that I have a life that is committed to the apostles' teaching, which now we hold the full version of the apostles' teaching and the Old Testament. I'm devoted to what God calls me to do in his word, and I'm devoted to prayer because I am dependent on God. My life lives in an upward way because I need the Lord through his word and through prayer. So turning kind of to the outward, I told you the meerkats were devoted to some things. The other two things that meerkats are devoted to is, first of all, social bonding. Meerkats are often called the most social animals on earth because they don't do anything alone. Literally, they never leave the mob, and they're always together. It's been said that a solitary meerkat is a dead meerkat. It just doesn't happen. Part of the reason is 
is the second, that they are committed to one another. They are devoted to other meerkats in their mob. The dangers abound, and the ways that the meerkat families protect themselves from danger, you've probably seen. They stand up and they have their little paws or hands or feet or whatever those are, and they stand there and they're looking around for danger. Every meerkat takes a turn being that guard. That guard stands above the rest, an easy sight for birds, an easy sight for foxes and everything else that would like to eat them and kill them. That meerkat stands guard, and if he sees something, he barks to tell the other meerkats, run and hide. He stays there, making sure everybody knows to run and hide. The meerkat sacrifices himself for the good of the other meerkats. And everybody has to take a turn. They're all part of that sacrificial system of caring more for the other meerkats than they do for themselves. That's outward living. Upward living seeks to honor God, to live right before him. And outward living seeks to honor the church, those who Christ has bought with his blood, as more important than ourselves. And to do that, I want to start in verse 41. So those who accepted his message, you remember that we looked at this two weeks ago, that Peter had preached probably his greatest sermon and likely the first Christian sermon to be preached and written down. Peter preaches this great sermon, and those who accepted his message were baptized, and that day about 3,000 people were added to them. So 3,000 people immediately went from death to life, from unbelief to belief, and from non-Christian to followers of Christ. My first thought is, what a logistical nightmare that would be to try to figure out how we're going to get new believers classes for all of these people. Can we get Amazon to ship us like 3,000 workbooks for like a fundamentals class or something? How are we going to train and teach 3,000 people what it means to be Christian? So that verse, that 3,000 were added to their number, immediately is followed by they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. My ideas are bad. Their ideas were, let's live what it means to be a Christian and demonstrate to these 3,000 new believers what a Christian looks like. What does a Christian look like? For them, the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. So instead of trying to get them in a class, they said, let's just show you what it looks like to be a Christian. And they discipled by their way of life these people. Now the, second, or the first thing that we see here in the outward living of how to be a Christian and live in an outward way, the first one is the breaking of bread. It probably means both literally breaking bread, having dinner together, and communion. In the breaking of bread, they would have had a loaf of bread and they would have ripped part of it off and passed it around the table. So they literally would have broken bread together with the idea that you sit together and you're spending time together and you're having conversation, you're getting to know people, you're getting to be known by people, 
You're getting to share with them the life that Christ has given you, figuring out from them how they came to know the Lord, what this means, how they ought to be living. The breaking of bread is a significant part of discipleship because it allows people to come together to have conversation, to learn about and care about and be cared about by other Christians. Then after the meal, they probably would have had communion, the literal breaking of bread and then the figurative breaking of bread as Christ's body was broken. They would have remembered Christ together as a church, as a group of believers. The second thing that is the outward living is to fellowship. And that's where I want to spend the rest of our time that we have together is this idea of fellowship. One of my professors wrote a book called Sojourners and Strangers. It was the idea of we as Christians do not have a home on earth. We're just sojourners going about and we're strangers to this life. That we have a home that is in heaven and not here. And so while here, we're just strangers. The book was excellent. It was all about the doctrines of the church. But the part that I liked the most was the dedication page, which is kind of a weird thing to say, like a 300-page book, and the dedication was really good. And he wrote the dedication to the pastors, elders, and people of a church that he attended from 97 to 2003. And he said these three words, together we lived. And for years now, that's like kind of resided in my heart, that idea of such deep fellowship that just together we lived. The word for fellowship here, the the Greek word for fellowship is koinonia. Koinonia is not just a word that we translate directly into English, so it needs a definition, and I gave my best shot at it, and it's in your bulletin there. Koinonia is a deep, God-given bond of fellowship and purpose. Koinonia is a deep, God-given bond of fellowship and purpose. Most of the usages of that word koinonia in the New Testament refer to the relationship between other believers. A couple times it is an example, and a couple times it's used of the relationship that we have with God or with the Holy Spirit. Most of the time, though, it's between us. The idea is that with koinonia, this fellowship goes beyond having similarities in life, beyond being in a a club together or enjoying the same things because it's a God-given fellowship. It's sharing of possessions, sharing of needs, sharing of hopes, sharing of joys, sharing of sufferings and of pain. It's all of parts of life through a lens that is Christian with people that follow God. Koinonia is a deep God-given bond of fellowship and purpose. What I like about this word is not only the implication of having this special type of fellowship, but throughout the Bible, it has not been used except for the first time in Acts 2.42. In Acts 2.42, it's used for the first time, and then 18 more times it's used in the New Testament, but never used until right here. 
the reason that it's used for the first time right here is this is the first time that koinonia, that a deep God-given bond is even possible. Before this, the people did not have the Holy Spirit. God had told, Jesus had told them, wait until the Spirit comes. Now the Spirit's come, and now they have this unique and special God-given ability to fellowship. And it's unique because it's God-given. We don't just have similarities of attending church and following God. This is a fellowship that is purely God-given, that those outside of the family of God do not understand and cannot share in any way. So Koinonia is not just a club, it's not just a team, it's not just an extracurricular activity, it is part of the makeup of what it means to be a Christian. And I want to illustrate that with a poem about a man named Ted who seeks to find clubs and to fit in there. It says, there was once a fellow named Ted whose interest in golf teams quickly shed. The rough, the weather, and no team spirit whatsoever had him quit, and to a soccer team he sped. Soccer, too, was a disaster. Finding everyone else was faster. He joined a chess team, yet faced the same theme. Checkmate again, not a chess master. To baseball he made the switch, but found team play harder than a pitch. Bowling was nixed, but still he was vexed. Each new team was like a fraying stitch. Ted's journey through teams was quite a sight. None could bring him any delight. His dissatisfaction remains, quitting all the sports and games, proving Ted just ain't quite right. Ted was looking for more, and he didn't find it with all of the things. You see, when we come to Christ, we're given a new identity. The old is dead, the new has come. In that process of the new birth, we become part of God's family, and only in God's family can we have koinonia. Paul says in Galatians, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Our old way of living is gone. Our new way of living is being devoted to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, to prayer, to living like and following Jesus. Koinonia is a deep, God-given bond of fellowship. And I know that is tricky to understand because we equate fellowship and friendship and membership and all of the other words that we would use with something that we join for a while or we take part in for a season and then we leave. But what the difference is is that for all that God has called to salvation, he calls to fellowship. So as you are called through Christ to salvation, he gives you this bond of fellowship with everyone else who has been called to salvation. Our koinonia, our fellowship, is not just with each other, but it's with the broad kingdom of God. All those who have been called to salvation are in fellowship with everyone else that God has called to salvation. 
It's a special thing to me to be able to be on vacation or be somewhere else and visit a church and have communion with those people. Because I've never met them, I don't know them, and yet here we are sharing the memory of what Christ has done with people we don't know, places we haven't been. We have a special bond that Christ has given through the cross that's enabled by the Holy Spirit that we, as Christians, are one body. That we, as Christians, have one thing in common. In a club, people come and go. The bowling season lasts, the baseball season comes and goes, there's the off-season. People quit, they get too old, they get bored, they switch, they move. But in Christ, none of those things happen. In Christ, we are and always will be koinonia together, having that fellowship. So how do we actually do that? I want to give you five quick things that are actually practical ways that we can live out that God-given bond of fellowship. The first one is that you have to commit time to a smaller group. I have to commit time to a smaller group for fellowship. Christian community has to be a priority. Our friendship and our knowledge of one another has to be a priority. Our time together has to be a priority. Often though, we are overworked and overstimulated and we're overcommitted. And so our Christian fellowship is something that's easy to take a hit because I've committed to these other things. My challenge for us is to say, my commitment to the body of Christ means that something else has to give. That a small group or a Bible study or fellowship with one another isn't the first thing that goes when we're busy. It's impossible to have koinonia, true fellowship, when you see each other one hour a week on a Sunday. I'm just being honest. Right? You don't know people when you come to church for an hour, hour and a half, and then go home. You just can't know people. So a small group, being committed to a smaller group of people has to be a priority. It doesn't have to be the same small group of people for the rest of your life. You know, you might have that fellowship with some people. And then there's a time where you're having fellowship with a different group of people. But you're getting to know and be known by people that are in the body of Christ. Real fellowship only comes through time and intimacy. You know, a solitary meerkat is a dead meerkat is basically what John Wesley said. He said there's nothing more unchristian than a solitary Christian. To be a Christian means you live in and with the community of God's people. And that's what Acts 2.46 and 47 uh, both say. Every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple. They broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts. They enjoyed the favor of all the people. And as a result, the Lord added to their number. They were together physically every day regularly. This was part of what they devoted themselves to. 2 Corinthians chapter 6 gives another use of the word koinonia. Paul says, don't be yoked together with those who do not believe. For what partnership is there between righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship, that's koinonia, does light have with darkness? Paul's literally saying, 
what possibility is there of God's people, the light, your children of light, what kind of intimate, deep fellowship can Christians have with the darkness? You can play on the same team or hang out at the same places, but that fellowship that we have with light and with darkness is always going to be different because it's not a God-given bond through the Holy Spirit. So how do we do that? We build relationships. Spend time together, commit to a small group. We have a shared devotion. Our devotion is the apostles' teaching, to breaking of bread, to fellowship, to prayer, that we have that common bond of Christ. As Christians, we need to know and be known by other Christians. So we need to commit time to a small group. The second thing is that we need to give sacrificially to meet the needs of and at the church and meet the needs of one another. It's hard to know the needs of people if you don't know the needs. You can't meet them, you can't know them, you can't help if you don't actually know what the needs are. And that has to be done through time. That has to be done through fellowship, through sharing, through prayer, through a concern for others. At the church, we get a lot of requests. We put the benevolence envelopes in the bulletin once a month. And benevolence goes to help meet the needs. People have needs. They call, they email, they say, hey, I've got needs. This is one way that we give sacrificially to meet the needs of God's people. I would also add to meet the needs to give sacrificially means to listen for and trust the leading of the Holy Spirit and then act on it. You don't need my permission or the church's permission to try to meet someone's need. If you see a fellow believer that has a need, do what you can. Try to meet that need. If it's too big or it's too much for you to handle, go to your small group. Come to the church. Go to someone you know and say, hey, this person has a need. As the body of Christ, I want to try to meet that need. How can we do it? We're showing care and compassion and kindness for God's people. So commit time, give sacrificially. The third one is to reject a consumer Christianity. Okay, if we are going to live in true God-given deep fellowship, we have to reject a consumer version of Christianity that says, as soon as this church doesn't meet my needs, I'll go somewhere else and find my, get my needs met. As soon as I get offended by somebody or I don't like something, I'm out of here. There's a dozen churches in town. I'll find one that's perfect that doesn't have this person or this problem. As consumers, we're trained to just go somewhere else. If you don't like a restaurant, you go to the next one. Go to the next one. You just keep going until you find something better. And that better thing eventually becomes worse, so you keep going and finding something else. A deep, God-given fellowship cannot happen if we don't actually care and deal with problems. If you have a problem with someone, go to them. Hey, you said this and it hurt me. You did this and I was offended. You always do this and I'm always offended. Go to that person and talk to them. You know, in the body of Christ, we're a body. We don't amputate a finger when it gets a splinter. We deal with the splinter. One hand helps the other hand. 
It takes two legs to walk. The body of Christ is not one person. It's all of us together. And if we are bailing because I can get a better burger somewhere else because they serve tacos almost every time they get together, if they and they and they and there's always that problem, we have to reject the idea of I'm just going to leave as soon as something doesn't go my way. I think in that vein also, if you've been in a small group, if you've committed time to that, and you've actually got to know someone, especially when you're a newer believer, you'll find that the church and Christian people can sometimes be a little raw or a little real, maybe even too real sometimes. And you're sitting there and someone's saying, hey, I need help, I've got this problem or I've done this thing. And the new believer's like, wow, I would never tell anyone that I struggle with that. But that's koinonia. That's a fellowship that rejects these loose and surface-level relationships in favor of deep relationships that actually care about one another. So commit time, give sacrificially, reject consumer Christianity. The fourth one is love the person sitting next to you more than you love yourself. We've done this before. I want you to look this way. Look at somebody. You're not listening. Look at this. Look at somebody. Look at somebody. Now, these are the people that you are to love. Okay, now this is easy, right? It's easy to love someone until the person you looked at has offended you and you've been holding a grudge for a long time. Like, even if it's in the back of your mind and you're like, do you remember when that person said this or did this or said they were going to and they never did? <laughs> to love that person is easy unless it actually is someone that's hard for you to love. It's hard for you to love someone that has a differing political opinion or they drive a Chevy and you're a Ford and, you know, we pick these reasons like, this is hard for me, but the body of Christ is bigger than us to love someone else in spite of how we feel is koinonia. To love the person sitting next to you. To go out of your way to serve them. When you're the person they call at 11 o'clock because they're broken down on the side of the road and you're in bed and you think about the grudge and you think about how last time they didn't even say thank you and here they are again and you're like, all right, what does fellowship mean here? What does loving someone in the way that Christ would love them mean right here? You know, we have elderly men and women in our church. It's hard to change a light bulb because they don't want to get up three steps on a ladder because their balance isn't great. It means changing a light bulb. It means they don't trust themselves to buy a car. They need help going and buying a car. It means widows who've spent their life with their husband. And she comes to a place that she says, I don't even know how to pay my bills because my husband already did that. Not that I can't pay him, I just literally don't even know how to pay my bills. The body of Christ comes together and loves someone more than they love themselves. A good way to love someone else is to ask them, how should I be praying for you? Not how can I pray for you, but how should I be praying for you? 
The difference is that I'm going to be praying for you. How should I do it? It's not an if. It's a when I pray for you. How should I be praying for you? There's something that's, you know, in this idea of loving the person sitting next to you, there's something that's humanly unnatural about loving someone that's different than you. It's easy to love people that are like us. It's hard to love people that are different. The world doesn't know the salt, the light they've never seen. They've never had the flavor of loving someone, but it does nothing for you. It's easy to love when we get something in return. It's hard to love when it's only given and there's nothing received. Just like Christ loved you and gave himself up for you. That while we were yet sinners, he died for us. Loving the person sitting next to us is a good example of that koinonia fellowship. The last one is that koinonia, the true deep Christian fellowship, is a witness in itself. You know, we've been saved, and so we tell others what it means to be saved. That's evangelism, telling someone what God has done through Christ in your life. You don't got to be great at it. You just tell somebody what God has done for you. I was once lost and now I'm found. I was once dead and now I'm alive. I was once hopeless, now I have hope. And in Koinonia, in the deep Christian fellowship, we have that in one another showing the outside world. Our Koinonia fellowship shows the world something that is not normal. That's the way Jesus said it would be. He says, a new command I give you in John 13, love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Our upward living is to God, for God. Our outward living is for God's people, that we would show them the love that Christ has for us. And the benefit is that the outside world sees a love that's very strange to them. It's not normal. It's not natural. It's easy to cut someone off. It's easy to say, I love you if or when, but not sacrificially. And that's what the world sees. By this, they will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So to love one another is to commit time, to give sacrificially, to reject the idea that I'll leave any chance I get or any time I want, to love the person sitting next to you, and to let that Christian fellowship be an example and a light to the world. The band is going to come up, and I want to read you a letter that demonstrates that idea of koinonia being what it means to share through life with the world. This letter was written to a man named Diognetus, or maybe he pronounced it differently, about a hundred years after Jesus died. So somebody anonymously wrote a letter to this man, and this person was saying, I've seen Christians, and here is how he would describe them. So a hundred or so years after Jesus died, this man says, Christians are not 
differentiated from other people by country, language, or customs. You see, they do not live in cities of their own or speak some strange dialect. They live in both Greek and foreign cities, wherever chance has put them. They follow local customs in clothing, food, and other aspects of life. But at the same time, they demonstrate to us an unusual form of their own citizenship. They live in their own native lands, but as aliens. Every foreign country is to them as their own native country, and every native land as a foreign country. They marry and have children just like everyone else. But they do not kill unwanted babies. They offer a shared table, but not a shared bed. They are passing their days on earth, but are citizens of heaven. They obey the appointed laws and go beyond the laws in their own lives. They love everyone, but are persecuted by all. They are put to death and gain life. They are poor and yet make many rich. They are dishonored and yet gain glory through dishonor. Their names are blackened and yet they are cleared. They are mocked and blessed in return. They are treated outrageously and behave respectfully to others. When they do good, they are punished as evildoers. And when punished, they rejoice as if being given new life. They are attacked by Jews as aliens and are persecuted by Greeks. Yet those who hate them cannot give them any reason for their hostility. The picture of Christians living together in true fellowship is strange to the world. It doesn't make sense that otherwise strangers would have such deep fellowship. Our love and concern, our devotion to these things tells other people outside the kingdom of God that there's something different about people who are Christians. That that letter shows how different Christians are, not in the way that we dress or live, but in who we are. You know, the upward living devoting our lives to God, the outward living, devoting our lives to one another is part of communion. Communion is the intersect of a life that's devoted to God and a life that's devoted to one another. In communion, we remember that Christ came from heaven to earth to die on the cross, offering his body as our sacrifice, his blood as our sacrifice, but it's not something we go and do alone at home. It's something that the church gathers together and the church remembers Christ, that we remember what he's done in the act of communion. 1 Corinthians 10, 16, and all of the, the men come up. One more use of the word koinonia. Paul says, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a sharing in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a sharing in the body of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not koinonia in the body of Christ? When we break bread, when we take communion together, we are saying we have a deep God-given bond of, of fellowship because of Christ through the Holy Spirit that started when Christians became Christians, when Christians live in community 
and care for one another, we have that bond of fellowship, and that's remembered in communion. We share in Christ's death. We share in Christ's life. We are co-heirs with him of a kingdom that's not on this earth. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul continues and he says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. On the night he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Consider as we take the bread that Christ calls us to himself, and everyone Christ calls to himself, he calls into fellowship with himself and with one another. The men are going to pass out the cracker and we'll take it together. So take it and hold on to it. So as one church, living for and under the headship of Jesus who gave himself on the cross for us, we'll take the bread together, remembering Christ's sacrifice. Paul says, in the same way he also took the cup after supper and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Men are going to pass out the juice and then we'll wait and take it together. Just remember the sacrifice of Christ on the cross for our sins.